let's go inside under my skin you come around the other way a dream i have spent hello and welcome to another edition of act in context podcast uh, my name is john delin and i am accompanied by our ever pleasant and thoughtful informative guest host jennifer plum hello hello jennifer I guess you're not a guest. You're just a co-host. I know. I don't know where I got that from. You just got got demoted. (laughs) We have, oh, you you, you heard DJ. We we have with us today um, a very special guest. His name is Dr. Daniel Moran, or DJ as he's known in the ACBS community. Uh, That's right. um, Welcome, welcome DJ. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, DJ was trained in behavior analysis and has been where, where were you trained? Tell us, tell us where you're trained. I went to Hofstra University and graduated in 1998 with my PhD in clinical and school psychology. That's New York, right? That's right. Okay. Yep. And it says you've been um, part of the ACT community since 1994, which is pretty early. Yeah, I uh, drove down to Atlanta for an opportunity to present with Bob Kohlenberg. He invited a couple of Hofstra students to talk about radical behaviorism and the self. So while uh, my friends and I uh, were down there, we got a chance to see Steve Hayes and uh, Robin Walser present. And uh, I knew by the end of that symposium that that was exactly the kind of work that I wanted to be doing. So I've considered myself uh, part of the ACT community since then, been buying context press books and going to all the conferences and really just jumping into it. Wow. That's pre the pre the 1999 book. That, that's a full right. oh, yeah. five years pre the book. I used to harass Steve to hurry up and present it <laughs> and, uh, and, and publish it. That's great. Nice. So it says you've been contributing at conferences and serving on the ACBS board of directors. Um, you are a co-author with Patricia Bach, Patty Bach, of the book Act in Practice, Case right. Conceptualization in Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. An excellent book that teaches psychotherapists how to develop case conceptualization skills that are aimed at improving practitioners' ACT interventions. For five years, you were the director of Trinity Services in Illinois, where uh, he or you ran an internship and practicum that taught therapists how to do ACT and evidence-based treatments. And it says most recently, you have begun a consulting organization called PickSlide Consulting. It's in Chicago, right? That's right. Where you use ACT strategies to help accelerate work performance, increase safety behaviors, and improve innovation and increase leadership and management skills in the workplace. So you're going commercial on us. Um, I think so, but uh, I still have my um, ACT values, and we have something called the Pick Slide Promise and the 11% Solution, where 11% of our profits right off the top go back into some kind of psychological or behavioral uh, health care initiatives. Well, that's cool, and there's nothing wrong with uh, spreading ACT in the workplace because that's a great way to disseminate and to bring it into the, the household, so no shame in that. That's right. No, yeah. and it's highly effective. It helps people with their safety. Uh, it helps people produce more. It helps them develop more psychologically healthy workplaces. And I think overall that's uh, important to a, uh, a well-integrated community. Yeah. You know, we should probably also just briefly mention that you're the first 
you're the first person I know of who's actually done an ACT podcast. So talk really briefly just about the podcast you did. Um, just want to give honor and respect to that, I guess. Oh, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, the name of the podcast is Functionally Speaking. And I started mostly because I wanted to spread the word about acceptance commitment therapy, relational frame theory, and functional contextualism. So I went to different conventions and interviewed ACT luminaries, RFT researchers, and essentially put it together in a digest that was fun to listen to. Um, and I added a couple of uh, different scripts and um, ideas about functional contextualism because I think if you're going to learn about something that's as complex but as important as the work we do, um, you have to kind of figure out different venues, different ways to get the information across. I thought a podcast would be fun to do. Well, um, I know a lot of – I have a lot of friends who have listened to it and really evaluate it. So, um, so, cool. so that's excellent, and thanks for joining us on this one as well. Yeah, happy to do it. So today the topic is going to be committed action, uh, but – but as we typically like to do on this podcast, why don't you just give us a brief bio, kind of about just briefly how you got into the field of psychology, what really turned you on to ACT, um, and uh, we'll use that as the, as the jumping off point for diving into committed action. When I told the people who, uh, who reared me that I was going to be a psychologist, um, there were a lot of eyebrow raises. Um, I was... Uh, kind of raised in, a, in an environment where people were thinking that I was going to go on and be a doctor because I got put up a grade when I was a kid and I had really high marks throughout high school and college. But my family um, was a little bit taken aback when I said I wanted to be a psychologist. Um, was this in New York? Where were you? Yeah, I was in New York. Okay. Yeah, uh, my, and uh, I said to myself, I want to do the type of work that, you know, can, can be proven to be effective. I mean, this is not really news to most psychologists, but psychologists are easily lampooned on sitcoms and movies. We, we, we're surrounded by other psychologists who really believe in some, in some stuff that just couldn't possibly work. It's really fanciful. Um, you know, we have people here in uh, my neck of the woods, in my professional organization, um, who practice age regression and and uh, and uh, other life um, therapy? Like, who were you before? You know, your current soul, stuff mm. like that. Uh -oh. And I said, you know, I, I don't want anything like, like that. I would like to have a uh, a psychology that is built on science, um, that's evidence based, and that I can bring to people and say, you know, this stuff really does work. And so I went into a. Uh, a, a Hofstra University with the idea of becoming more of a behavior therapist. Um, because of my time at uh, Hofstra, I studied with Kurt Salzinger, and he really uh, gave me a lot of good critical thinking skills, and um, he was a fantastic scientist, a great model. And he introduced me to functional uh, analytic psychotherapy, uh, which in turn got me to go to uh, the Association for Behavior Analysis. I met Steve, threw myself into the Context Press books. And uh, when I became a professor, I just started teaching more and more about behavior analysis. I became a board-certified behavior analyst, opened up a clinic, the Mid-American Psychological Institute. Patty Bach joined me there. We used to kind of knock back, uh, back and forth at different ideas on what to do with our clients, did case conceptualization, uh, supervision on each other, and we said, let's put this together into a book. We did that. Once that was published, uh, we also had the opportunity to... Um, 
be kind of the co-producers of the uh, ACBS Summer Institute in Chicago. And ever since then, it just felt like, you know, act, relational frame theory, functional contextualism, that whole thing became a thoroughgoing part of my career. So ACT is pretty integrated into all you do right now. ACT and yeah, RFT. pretty much. Yeah. Yep, all that stuff. I'm not, not that smart in too many other things, but I, but <laughs> I know my ACT. I've been at it for a while. <laughs> well, good. Well, thank you for that. Let's, let's just go ahead and dive in then. We've talked about, um, you know, acceptance and diffusion. We've talked about uh, contact with the present moment and self as context. And then we just did an interview um, on values and I guess in some ways committed action is kind of bring. I don't know if it's bringing it all together or bringing it home, but why don't you just start by telling us kind of how you think about committed action? And remember that, you know, our audience is someone who's just now ramping up to speed on ACT. In a lot of ways, you know, I, I get why you said what you, what you said, that, you know, committed action kind of brings it all together. It could be looked, could be looked at like that. The way I like to say it is... Um, Committed action is where the rubber hits the road hmm. in acceptance commitment therapy. Um, you can have all the other domains or areas dialed in, but if the person hasn't committed to action patterns that can be overtly measured and moving towards what's really important to them, then you really haven't completed your act work. We're talking about committed action being behavior or responding or actions in the service of what they've chosen to make their life about. And if people aren't doing something different, then you have to question how effective has the therapy been, even if they are more mindful, even if they are more willing to have their emotions. The question is, are they willing to mindfully and in an acceptance-based way go do the things that are really important as defined by their values? Mm. You sound like a behaviorist. I am a behaviorist. (laughs) (laughs) I mean that in a good way. Right. No. The values are showing, DJ. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I'm not going to put them away. Um, yeah, I'm such a behaviorist. My son was almost named Burris Frederick Moran. Wow. Wow. For, for those who don't know, that's the official name of B.F. Skinner, Burris right. Frederick Skinner. I didn't know that, actually. The, uh, <laughs> radical behaviorist who uh, started this whole behavioral movement. All right. Among Thanks for putting that in context. <laughs> okay, so I don't know if this is helpful, but... You know, maybe there, maybe right off the front, right off the bat, we could mention that, that there are some misconceptions about uh, committed action, or you could even do the inverse and kind of talk about what committed action is not. Is is this a concept that's ever misunderstood as it's described at a high level, or is it pretty clear those, clear cut? You know, I like to think that it's clear cut, but I think as can happen with a lot of you know complex applied science it can be misunderstood too when you ask somebody to do committed actions it's not that they're it's it's not that that's supposed to be magical there are scientifically based interventions that support or undergird committed action committed action in and of itself isn't the intervention it's essentially to me an umbrella term for all of the therapeutic interventions that have been shown to work if you're talking about committed action in the context of doing therapy. What I mean to say by that is committed action is doing the empirically supported treatment. It is doing, for somebody with obsessive-compulsive disorder, the exposure and ritual prevention. 
Mm. For somebody who's depressed, it is doing the behavioral activation intervention. Mm. For somebody who's dealing with some kind of anxiety disorder, it is the exposure work that you're going to be doing. You don't just do committed action. You define committed action as certain types of steps, methods, um, some kind of behavioral plan that will move the person towards their valued action. So that's essentially what I mean by committed action. Jen, do you have any do you have anything to add on that, Jen? I was just going to say, so it sounds like, um, you know, in your opinion, this is um, what makes ACT a behavior therapy. You in know, this a, in is, a lot this, of ways. Yeah. Um, because, you know, it, it, it's putting, I like how you're saying it's putting the therapy into place. Like it's actually doing what you say you're, you're, you care about. And right. making that, making those changes rather than, um, you know, as opposed to maybe in other forms of therapy, that maybe insight is sort of the goal, you know, understanding more about yourself. But if that doesn't translate into actual changes in life that are meaningful, sort of what is, you have to ask, what's the purpose of that? Mm-hmm. Right. And I know today's not necessarily talking about, you know, meditation or enlightenment, but I think if you were to do the other pieces of ACT, the other five, um, and you don't do any committed action, what you'll probably get at if you just did that stuff is some kind of enlightenment, some kind of you know spiritual, personal feeling change or a, a different view on the world. But I think that's why I call it the rubber hit where the rubber hits the road. This is where that stuff, which is very powerful and worthy and worthwhile, but that's where that other stuff gets its traction. When you start to commit to a certain direction and move and get traction with your behavior, then you're going to start going places. You know, I'm just going to, I'm just going to add something that I'm finding interesting. It seems like what, you, you know, I, I is kind of a neophyte to all this. I tend to think of committed action as the homework and it's this process that you kind of cover at the end and maybe you sprinkle a little bit of homework, but you're kind of describing all the stuff that's done in session. If it's, if it's, if it's helping them uh, work towards their, their values, if it's helping them improve in, in various areas, you're talking about it being integrated within the session as well from the very start. Is that right? Right. Well, as soon as, uh, as, soon as you start working with somebody in session, there should be some kind of behavioral work going on. I mean, it's just a couple of minutes ago you said, I'm a, I'm a behaviorist and I wear that badge very proudly. I think that session time should be used for in vivo work. Right. Doing something with your time rather than just talking. And even if it's a talk therapy is act talk therapy, it still, to me, isn't enough unless you're inviting the person or putting them into a context where they can start to commit to things that are important to them, of course, with their informed consent. Yeah, because the way I've been thinking about committed action right now is just, oh, it's that eighth session where I have them describe their values and then set some goals around their values. And you're saying it's much more rich than that. Hey, you know what? Showing up for therapy is something that you can reinforce, and it is committed action. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's, it's, I mean, right then and there, just greeting them and, and, and kind of reinforcing the fact that they're going to keep coming back and that you're going to put something together, finding out what their goals are. You know, that is part of the committed action piece. And then drawing on your knowledge as a therapist on how can we get this person to do more or less of a certain thing, that's, that's also committed action work. Okay. So we've talked about this a bit uh, already, but I guess, I guess it'd be good to kind of talk about, um, the, you know, the benefits of, of the committed action process 
uh, we've talked about it quite a bit, but also how it kind of integrates with the other processes. And I know you have a, f- a few thoughts on how maybe thinking about ACT as six components isn't always the best way to think about it. So give us your philosophies of the benefits of committed action and how it integrates with the other processes. Well, I will reiterate, especially if folks are new at ACT, that committed action can look differently depending upon what the clinical presentation is. It's the piece that most people who are learning therapy already know about. If you're going to do, and I don't want to repeat myself too much, but if you're going to treat obsessive-compulsive disordered repertoires, you're very likely to use exposure and ritual prevention because it's the evidence-based approach, right? So that, that's what we're talking about for committed action. If it's um, a, a different type of problem and you know, according to the literature, that this type of therapy or intervention works, then what you do is you essentially insert that into your hexagon case conceptualization and say, when it comes to committed action, it's time for us to do empirically supported treatments. And this is the empirically supported treatment plan that I'm going to do with this person. Hmm. Now, just because you have an empirically supported treatment plan doesn't mean the person's going to be completely on board. Um, A lot of times people are going to resist doing an exposure-based intervention. They don't want to do it. I mean, if somebody had obsessive compulsive disorder to talk just kind of colloquially here, imagine someone says, you know, I'm afraid I'm going to get contaminated. And we pretty much tell them, well, what we're going to do in my office is touch doorknobs and put our hands on the inside of garbage cans and put your hand at the bottom of the toilets in my office. The person's going to say, I'm coming to treatment for my fear of that. And you're telling me that the treatment is to just go ahead and do that. That's exactly what I want to avoid doing. So when you've got that type of thing showing up in your office, what might support the committed action of doing exposure and ritual prevention is a values assessment. What do you want your life to be about? If your life could be about anything, you know, what would you prefer? And what are some of the kinds of things that show up when you start to have these obsessions and you do these compulsive behaviors? What are you thinking about? You're probably thinking about, the future, this terrible future that you're going to get contaminated or contaminate your family. What if we could give you the skills of focusing more on right now? And what if we could also use acceptance and diffusion in order to teach you how to have a different relationship with your private events? How do you have a different way of relating to your thoughts, the sensations that come up when you're going to, you know, shake someone's hand, the emotions that come up when you start to ruminate about the fact that your life has become more and more restricted and rigid because of this obsessive compulsive repertoire. When you start to talk about acceptance, diffusion, contacting the present moment of selfish context and values, that supports doing the exposure and ritual prevention work. Mm-hmm. So, so in other words, it makes the the difficult work of behavior change, um, it sets it into a context of meaning, purpose, and also provides people with maybe some psychological coping skills to, to better be able to do those things because it's for a purpose. They have some practice, maybe getting some distance from those sort of psychological experiences that have shown up as barriers to maybe changing those behaviors. Right. Is that a fair assessment? Yep, yep mm-hmm. I agree. It's everything you said. When they realize you know, what's vital in their life, when they realize that they can have skills 
to make them more present focused. And they can also have other skills that help them deal with the obstacles to being more psychologically flexible. When they have those things in place, then setting off a new action pattern that's more important to them and let's just say curative um, is, is likely to be um, accelerated. So that's why I think that putting ACT plus some kind of behavior therapy is really a good idea. Mm. Wow, you just, you're making the ACT feel very integrated for me right now instead of kind of six pillars and processes. Right, I think, I appreciate that. I, I, I think that the entire model is about building up psychological flexibility. And what we're essentially telling people, or not telling them, teaching and setting them up into a situation where they're invited to think about the world this way, we teach them, you know, you're here right now, mindfully. And in the presence of these emotions that are so yucky and these thoughts that are really aversive, given what you really care about, are you willing to just have those thoughts and feelings right here, right now, and then in that context, do the things, do, meaning the committed action, do the things that you really care about. In therapy, we select empirically supported treatments as the thing to do. But if you were to use this as a lifestyle issue or a way to help you deal with, you know, non-clinical problems, you might not be pulling out empirically supported treatments as your action plan, but rather, what am I going to do today? How am I going to lose this kind of weight? How am I going to train for a marathon? How am I going to relate to my children or my wife better? And when you figure out what you need to do, don't forget that just because you have an action plan in place, there still might be obstacles. You're still easily hooked to think about other things mm -hmm. uh, at mm -hmm. other times. Mm -hmm. and you might be fused to things that you've learned before. You might not be all that mindful. So in the present moment, uh, you're less likely to treat your children kindly if you're thinking about things about your past and, and you're jealous of them. What mm. ACT does is it makes people more mindful of what's going on now, gives them the skills to deal with their emotions and their thoughts, clarify what's important to them, and then they can look at that list of things to do and say, now I am better prepared to mm. execute these things. Mm -hmm. Got it. So it kind of frees, the, it disentangles them from anything that might, uh, that might keep them from being able to act. It kind of frees them up and then motivates them with the, with the values piece to want to actually change their behavior. Yeah, John, I like the way you said that. Yep. Yeah. So before we dive into how um, committed action uh, can be used in, in the therapy room uh, clinically, is there any science, even generally, if you just want to describe the types of studies or a type of study or two, that can just let us know that, that this specific process has sort of been validated empirically in the laboratory? Well, I'm lucky because out of the six processes um, that I could be talking about today, committed action probably has the greatest literature behind it. It's so vast, and I don't use that word lightly, mm. um, that I can't just pick something out that would be representative. It is the empirically supported treatment literature. That is what the committed action stuff is. If you were to go to Division 12's you know, Society of Clinical Psychology, their list of empirically supported treatments that is the proof that committed action works. Th those those mm. steps that you take in behavioral activation or in flooding, that that is to support the, to to committed action. We also know that any time that you're going to use just any behavior analytic interventions, applied behavior analysis, there's tons of research behind applied behavior analysis to show that 
proper consequences and antecedents for certain types of behavior are going to lead to behaviors, target behaviors that we want. Hmm. That right there, applied behavior analysis, is committed action. Doing mm -hmm. the therapy that has support behind it, well, that is what committed action is all about. If we were to take it out of the therapy realm just for a second and just realize that putting lists together, rewarding yourself when you do a good job, making specific, measurable, attainable, relevant time-based uh, goals, the SMART goals that we're taught, when, when we when – we, Figure out what kind of goals we want to head towards and what is the action plan to get there, then we're engaging in committed action. It's the other five that support it that help people deal with the obstacles of executing proper action. Gotcha. Awesome. So it sits on a, a large and long sort of behavioral literature as well as cognitive behavioral literature that really supports, uh, supports all the things we're talking about today. Right. If I can give you an example, um, if folks are familiar with Albert Ellis's shame attacks. No, I'm not. I'm not at all. Okay. Al Ellis uh, has been, and you can look this up. I won't spend time now, but uh, he's been called by the APA research uh, the second most influential psychotherapist on how people actually do therapy. And I was lucky enough to do a fellowship with him and um, his last article uh, published posthumously uh, was with uh, J.T. Blackledge and I about a relational frame theory approach to REBT. How cool. Al, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Al Ellis uh, developed rational emotive behavior therapy and what he really did, on top of all this irrational, rational belief disputing, he was excellent at coming up with flooding and exposure exercises. He called them shame attacks sometimes or, or just different names that he had for them. But to give you a sense on something that he did uh, with a friend of mine while we were in graduate school, he told them, uh, my, my friend said, hey, listen, I'm having trouble with my public speaking. I'm having a hard time. Sometimes I get embarrassed when I'm in front of other people. How can I get better at speaking to folks? How can I get better used to feeling ashamed or, or nervous? He said, what I want you to do is go into the Walgreens pharmacy, and I want you to go in there, and, and as loud as other people can hear it, I want you to go right up to the pharmacy and say, I'd like to buy a box of condoms. And this was in the early 1990s where, you know, the safe sex stuff wasn't as prevalent as it is now. So that would have been somewhat embarrassing for him. He did this a couple of times. And what this is, is committed action. Sure, it's REBT because Al told him to do it in 1990. <laughs> you know, act wasn't really around back then. But this is the committed action piece. Go and do something so often that you become flooded and the condition stimuli do not, you know, uh, evoke a condition responses correlated with anxiety. You also get better practice at saying things. And then the better you get at this, your anxiety may or may not go down. But you'll be doing stuff like saying things that are embarrassing. Once he got good at it, he went back to Al. He says, Al, I don't really have a problem with this. I can go up there and I can ask for a box of condoms at the CVS or the pharmacy, no problem. In fact, I'm running out of money. I've got, I've got a gross of, of boxes of condoms and I just don't, I'm never going to be able to use all of <laughs> Al said, okay, well, let me ask you to do this then. If you're so slick, 
What I want you to do is I want you to go back to the pharmacy and, again, at the top of your lungs say, Hi, I'd like to buy a box of small condoms, please. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, this is just brilliant committed action, brilliant flooding shame attack. Um, that, that is committed action. Now, of course, I'm not you know, exhorting any of the ACT uh, practitioners out there who are listening to this to you know, have folks go do crazy things like this. But when you're asking your client to change their behavior in the service of chosen values, and I'm just going to kind of invite people to think, what do you think my friend's chosen values might be? In the service of his <laughs> chosen values, he was willing to go ahead and commit to new action patterns that broadened his repertoire. You know, that's the other side of what building psychological flexibility is in the middle of the hexaplex. We're trying to build psychological flexibility. What that really means, to, especially to a behavior analyst, is a broadening of a behavioral repertoire. People are going to be more willing to do new things or important things with their life. Psychopathology, for lack of a better term, that's what restricts repertoires. That's what makes people live in smaller and smaller environments. ACT tries to broaden people's repertoire. It tries to make it more flexible so that more behaviors are at their disposal, more operants are at their disposal garners greater reinforcement. What does that mean? It leads to a more value-driven life. That's what reinforcers mm. are all about. What do you really care about in your life? Committed action is about that. It's about inviting people to do new things that they care about to build up flexibility so they can live the life that they want to. Mm. Awesome. I just want to take a minute and clarify some of the, the terms that you just used, DJ, for those folks who are listening who maybe don't have a background in behavior analysis or behavioral terms. I just right. want to take a minute and kind of just sort of slow that down and sort of talk about when we say like, when you mean like behavioral narrowing. So in other words, like, can you give us an example of like someone comes in with um, some sort of maybe a fear or say OCD or something, behavioral narrowing would mean you know, they're only able to respond by doing, say, a compulsion, which may be cleaning or organizing or yeah. um, or leaving a situation that's stressful when it, when they have a, a fear about contamination or uh, that something is not going the way that they're hoping for. So, so in other words, like they only have a few things available to them behaviorally. That's sort of the narrowing. And when you say broadening, it's more like different kinds of responses people can have. So you could stay in the presence of that that um, situation that's stressful, you could actually seek out, uh, like like your friend, you know, actually seek out things like purposely that are right. hard to have or embarrassing or something like that, or or you know, give us some other examples of what broadening might be. Could that be um, maybe? Uh, you know, getting to, to really look at uh, something that's dirty, really look at sort of the colors of the mold or something like that, you know, right, really right. just changing how you respond to it and have a number of different responses available to you is kind of what you mean by broadening, correct? Right. Yeah. To give cool. uh, a little bit of a story that, and I'll, I'll try to take it easy on the jargon. I've been really blessed with opportunities to uh, be on camera for hoarding buried alive and confessions, animal hoarding. These are on Discovery Channel and TLC mm. and stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it comes from the fact that I've treated a, quite a few folks that deal with hoarding. And if you're not familiar with hoarding, um, it has to do with um, just taking lots of stuff into your house that you think has some kind of meaning or value. And you can't imagine throwing it away, so much so that you amass this giant quantity of 
of detritus, debris. Did I just say I wasn't going to use any jargon? <laughs> uses the word detritus. But all this stuff, because I don't want to call it junk, because that's what other people would call it. But to that person, it's important to them. And they just have all of this stuff in their house, and they're unwilling to just have a cleaner space. Um, because just to take one example, and there are dozens of reasons why someone might uh, engage in the behavior class of hoarding. But I know one person that I treated several years ago, all of the stuff in her house was because she wanted to give it to somebody else someday. Mm-hmm. She you know, held on to um, stuff that she found when she garbage picked or went to garage sales. And her house became so amassed with these items that no one would come over and visit her anymore. And she was fused with the idea that I have to keep these things so that when I see so-and-so, I can actually, you know, give that to them and they'll like me. They'll, they'll, they'll think I'm worthwhile. But what that did was because her house was so unkempt, no one would come over and visit. And because she was so ashamed of how she kept her house, she wouldn't go and visit anybody's house. Mm. So what I mean by a restriction of a repertoire, a repertoire is a group of behaviors, her ability to go out to dinner with folks, to go visit, to have people over to her house for holidays or just a weekend, it's become restricted. Really all she could do was, you know, take care of this stuff. And then she was also fused with the idea of getting more stuff. this way, if I find the right gift, if I find the right thing to give someone, then they'll more likely, uh, hold me in higher esteem again. So she went out and she kept shopping and buying new things for these other people for this one day reunion. But all that did was it restricted a repertoire that was taking care of her house, working for more money so that she could buy more stuff to eventually someday give to someone else. Hmm. If you're familiar with the Hexaflex, there's no contact with the present moment there. Her values, they're in there whispering. She wants to have good relationships with people, but her committed action just it really wasn't there to actually engage with people. So the treatment was, can you now leave your house and just go visit other people? Can you actually start to instantiate your relationships again with your friends, your cousins, the people who you care about? And then also, would you be willing to clean up this part of your house just this way someday you can have visitors? When you do both those things, go visit and clean you're starting to broaden your repertoire. More actions are available to you. And so you've got much more of a psychologically flexible lifestyle rather than this rigid, hoarding, obsessive, compulsive repertoire. Got it. Great example. And I, I think one of the things that I I just noticed in what you were saying is um, it seems like it can be really easy for someone's values, to, to for, for someone's uh, sort of narrowed or, or um, sort of less flexible behaviors to, to seem like they might be value driven. Like she was saying, well, I want to give these things to people because I care about them. I mean, sure, there's this piece of this fusion with then they'll like me. But, um, you know, I, I had watched an episode of one of those hoarding shows where a woman hoarded cats because she wanted right. to, she was the only person in town who would take in stray cats. And right. that was really meaningful to her to be able to care for them. But it sort of took on this larger repertoire narrowing behavior where now she had like 40 cats in her house and, you know, animal yep. control had to come in and all this other stuff. So it can seem like values, but like, I like how you said it sort of the values whispering. Cause if you right. 
sort of get inside that. It's really not about amassing cats. It's about, well, if caring is what you care about, can you really actually give good care to 40 cats? Yep. <laughs> Probably mm-hmm. not. Good. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Very I'm good. Glad, I'm glad you amplified the, the metaphor there. I think inside lots of psychopathology values are whispering. I mean, it's not usually somebody doing something clinically relevant for no good reason at all. All of psychopathology, so to speak, is functional. It get it's reinforced by something. Mm-hmm. But what we want to do is we want to get at, well, what other things could you do for similar kinds of reinforcers that are more workable, uh, are more healthy yeah. for you? Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay, so let's go ahead and jump to the clinical side and talk about how you uh, approach committed action in the in, in clinical settings. Sure, it's a big um, it's a big topic. <laughs> yeah, I think that um, yeah, I'm going to just go back to the idea that most people listening to this probably already know what to do. Um, you know, the whole do a good assessment. Um, you know, make sure that you've got uh, good behavioral data on, on what the presenting problem is and then visit the literature or your supervisor or what you already know works for treating anxiety, depression, marital concern, anger problems. And then once you've kind of matched that up, once you've done a good assessment and then visited the literature, derived which kind of treatment you're going to move forward with, get their permission to go ahead and do that. What you've done is you've already built your committed action portion of that hexagon model. You know that these are the steps that you're going to take in order to uh, get this person in the direction that they want to go. I mean, just picking something out of the air, if you had someone show up and they had assertiveness problems and you learned that from your, from your diagnosis, I'm sorry, from your, from your assessment, then figuring out what kind of interventions you're going to do to build up their assertiveness, um, flooding, um, in vivo uh, practice, role-playing, uh, bibliotherapy, because there's lots of really good books out there on assertiveness training. When you say, these are the steps that we're going to take, these are the resources we're going to use, and week by week, we're going to take each one of these steps a little bit further along, and by session 12, uh, we will have gone through these modules of assertiveness training. Right there is that is the committed action, and it can change for whatever the behavioral problem is. Um, So to me, developing what I'm going to do for the committed action piece in an act case conceptualization usually has to do with proper assessment, proper diagnosis if you want to do that kind of stuff, figuring out what the uh, appropriate treatment is, and then putting together the behavior intervention plan. And I imagine that most therapists already have that in place. What... What ACT can also add, and this is kind of, I don't want to say a footnote, but it's just a different take on it. Um, What ACT adds to this is a willingness to commit to things, and they don't have to be really grand. We're not talking, what, what committed action is sometimes in ACT is you set out a 12 week program for assertiveness. The person just doesn't get that far. That doesn't mean you abandon it. 
that means you commit to the process. Um, if people fall, if people don't um, seem to be hitting the markers at the right speed, an ACT therapist says, well, guess what? There's no odometer or speedometer on the way that we do ACT work. We just want to measure that you're committed to this. If you're willing to move forward, it doesn't matter how quickly you move forward. It just matters that you're oriented in the right direction and you stick with this. Hmm. That's what committed action is about. Um, this is kind of the way I like to talk about this whole no speedometer or odometer in ACT. Once you've clarified with somebody what their values are, then the direction they move, even – well – you can't measure how fast they're moving in that direction or if they ever really accomplish certain things. The important thing is that they're committed to what they care about. It's a lot easier to talk about this with an example. Let's mm -hmm. say you have two people, Jason and Ralph, and they both, they both talk about having the same value. Uh, they both say, I want, my life, I want my life to be emblematic of my own self-reliance and my independence, and I want to be self-sufficient. These are things that, that are important to me, that you know, I, I was able to accomplish certain things that showed my self-reliance to myself. Well, Jason, we ask him, well, how would you know if you did that? What are some of the things that you know, you're going to move towards? What would be some milestones on this journey? And you say, Jason might say, well, I'm going to finish college. I want to own a house. I want to move out of my parents and, and own a house, and I want to establish my own startup company. Okay. And then you go to Ralph. Ralph's in the next session. Ralph's a little different. He doesn't go to college and live with his parents. He, um, you treat him because he has an IQ of about 65, and he lives in a community-integrated living arrangement. And he tells you the same thing. He can value the same thing. As Jason, I value self-reliance. Mm. I want to be independent. I, I value self-sufficiency. How will we know? What are some committed actions? What are some milestones that let us know that you're working towards or in the direction of your own self-reliance? He might say, well, I want to finish my uh, vocational training. Mm -hmm. um, I want to move out of the Scylla and into this really neat county-owned independent living quarters. And uh, I want to get a job at Walmart. Now... If you were the type of person to think, well, we have to measure achievement to see which one of these guys, you know, is really psychologically flexible. Well, then, you know, I think some people might judge Jason is doing better if he gets there than Ralph. But if Ralph finishes training, moves out of the Scylla and gets work at a local uh, grocery store, how could you even think about denigrating his achievement? Committed action is going to be based on what the situation affords, what the person is capable of doing, and it's going to look different depending upon what the people's values are and, and what's personally important to them. Jason might, if you could put a speedometer or an odometer on this stuff, Jason might finish up in four years, get his own house within the first year, and his startup might be rocking in the fifth year of, of this plan. And it might take Ralph a long time because he's got a dual diagnosis for him to do these kinds of things. But you can't say treatment wasn't a success for Ralph if he's moving in this direction. That's what committed action is about. It's not necessarily about a certain thing being achieved. It's the continual process of developing 
psychological flexibility based on what you care about. So there is no speedometer. It doesn't matter how fast you get there. There's no odometer. It doesn't matter what you achieve. It's that mm -hmm. constant living. It's that constant vitality. This is what's important to, to me in my life. I'm going to keep doing these things. Can, can I just ask a clarifying question too? Um, sure. You know, in both those examples, I, I like that the timeline for, for sort of meeting some of these goals may be different in each of these clients. But, you know, f for anyone who's, who's doing therapy, sometimes, you know, my experience of working with clients is that they might have really good intentions and, um, you know, pr be willing, you know, really moving in the direction of the things they care about. But sort of the environment around them isn't supporting the kind of changes that they'd like to be making. So, for example, let's just say, you know, someone comes in and their their spouse is, uh, you know, not open to having certain discussions about how the couple spends money or how the kinds of changes that maybe the client might be wanting to make. And even with that person's practice of speaking to the spouse in a different way or taking steps in that direction, maybe they're not even achieving those sort of the thing you would say like as an outcome, like, uh, you know, the money is being spent differently or the, the person gets a divorce or, or whatever sort of is happening. So how, how do you sort of change the sort of the goal a little bit, you know, and how do you help people stay on track when maybe despite their best practices and their willingness to put themselves in new situations and, and to practice the things they care about, they're still not actually getting there. They're still not actually achieving the goal. Right. Right. I understand. Well, so I, yeah, go ahead. Yep. So psych, psychological flexibility is our goal. I mean, that's, that's essentially mm -hmm. what we're looking at here is, you know, how can we get, or how can we invite people to become more psychologically flexible? Um, and part of what psychologically flexible people are aware of is that there are some things you can change and some that you can't. So, your action is going to be based on what the situation affords. Mm. When you're asking somebody, you know, what do you want to do with your life? And the environment doesn't support it. If there is an abusive spouse, if there isn't enough finances, if they live in an area where it just precludes them from doing some of the things that they want to do. Um, what, what we're going to essentially suggest is, can you figure out a flexible way to continue to live um, according to your chosen values? Mm. Um, can Even if the environment won't budge, can you still orient yourself towards living a lifestyle um, in the presence of these challenges? And if you can change them, can you commit to doing those things? And if you can't change certain things, would you be willing to accept what comes up when you have to live in that kind of situation. Mm, mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yep, absolutely. I, I think that's really helpful because, you know, that I think <clears throat> if you do this work long enough, you'll probably run into someone who might, who might be in one of those scenarios. So it's, it's nice to hear sort of how to, how to deal with that. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Okay. Got it. Okay. So, so as we continue this discussion about how to do committed action clinically, I, I get what you're saying. Um, and and we've talked a little bit about the fact that much of the empirically supported intervention that you would bring in to the specific diagnosis counts as committed action, along with whatever homework assignments you give at the end of each um, at the end of each session. So so why don't you take us a little bit further into how you um, bring committed action 
you know, into the therapy room with your clients, building on what you've already said. Okay. Um, like, to think of the, like, you know, I mean, there's, you know, for, for the, for example, for Mike, Mike Twig's act for OCD protocol, there definitely is sort of a session seven and eight, which, which deals with values and committed action. And, and you basically do the values assessment and then you, you start talking about what types of goals or, you know, behavior that they can engage in going forward to deal with, for example, their OCD. But my, my guess is that, that you would do some of that in act DJ, but, but maybe, there are some other areas or key ways that you integrate integrate committed action into, you know, the the you know the clinical setting. So, I'll talk about a, a couple of things and I'll I'll try to make them succinct. But the first thing I want to react to is that um, I think in Mike Twig's work, and I I love Mike. Uh, he and I wrote a, a chapter together with Steve. I uh, have a very good time talking to him at every uh, convention. He's a an amazing scientist. He's young and he's published so much that's so erudite and scholarly. Uh, he's, he's a hero. He's a rock star. And I want to clarify if people read his work, I don't think Mike would say that you would do values work or committed action in session seven. It's, it's not, um, and I'm not even saying that you're saying that I'm just, just in case a listener might've uh, misinterpreted. If you're doing fluid therapy in a, in, you know, for a client who wants to change their behavior, forming this therapeutic relationship and, 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 and the idea of the therapeutic relationship is to change behavior. I'd say rarely are, are you going to codify what to do uh, in which session so far ahead because you want to be flexible with what shows up in the first session. I mean, if the person is bringing to you that they're freaking out about what they want their life to be about and you say to yourself well i can't really talk about values till session seven (laughs) that's not act you know know? and let me just say let me just say that mike would never advocate for that he's very fluid i'm i'm doing an ocd outcome study so there is a protocol that i follow just so that we can make sure that other people could reproduce it and in that there is you know a session or two dedicated to values and committed action towards the end but Mike always says do act and and do act flexibly. But yes, keep no. keep going. <laughs> yep, I didn't I didn't think John that you yeah. would do it flexibly nor Mike. I just that was just for the listeners just in case. Okay, um, so in the in the, in your clinical application, yep. you'll you'll pull values and committed action out in session 1 if necessary. Yeah, and any time that it seems like it might be worthwhile um just to do things in a flexible in the moment, you know, authentic manner. Um but I am thinking about uh working with this one a uh, person uh, named, we'll just call him Dennis, and he was having a hard time asking uh, uh, people out. He was a uh, senior in high school, and he was struggling with uh, dating, and he was afraid to ask people out on dates. And uh, I said, if, you know, if you're coming to seek a professional to ask women out on dates, you're talking to the wrong person. Um, but if you want to learn how to uh, you know, put together uh, committed action and how to uh, deal with your um, you know, psychological rigidity, you're in the right, you're in the right place. Um, so what I suggested we do is simply role playing. And he said, uh, well, I'm not going to role play with you. You're a guy. And I said, well, you know, I- I'm okay with this. If you're, I'm the one who has to play the girl, what are you worried about? <laughs> and he said, oh, I'm not comfortable with it. I said, if in the service of your chosen values of living a more broad social life, that uh, that you get a chance to um, 
get to know people and have interpersonal relationships and someday start a family in the presence of that would you be willing to have you know the the nervousness and the creepiness of of talking to me right now notice what it feels like notice that your mind is telling you oh my gosh i can't ask this guy you know these certain types of questions and just be present with me right now you're not a nervous person you're not a you're not a bad person you're not a creepy guy you are here now in the presence of your emotions and your thoughts saying to yourself i care about learning more about how to start relationships with people who I may someday care about. And, and in the presence of all that, I'm going to do something. I'm going to commit to this particular kind of role play. And do you see how, like, you learn in school and you learn from lots of your professors, if you want to get better at social relationships, do role plays. But I tried to do a role play and he said, no, I'm not going to do it with you. But when you added those other five dimensions of act, the mindfulness, the acceptance, the diffusion, the values, that self as context, it sets it up so that that exercise is, it just seems like it's more inviting. Hmm. It just seems like it's more, it's got more potential for the person to uh, be willing to do it. We moved on from role plays to going to the mall and, you know, just asking people his own age and and uh and other women who he found attractive uh at the department stores asking them the time asking them about different things and and that is committed action just going and doing things that are in the service of building up a repertoire of flexibility based on what your value system uh defines for you mm-hmm. that makes sense yeah and and so um, not to say that there's a necessarily like a, a rigid way of doing this, but, you know, if we return to that example, um, now, w- were you able to go through the whole sort of other five processes in a session? Did that take a few sessions? I mean, is it something that you, you know, practiced revisiting with him at, at, at different levels? Um, h- how did that sort of play out? When we're speaking about th- that one particular client, I I, I don't remember the trajectory of the therapy, but I would like to say, just kind of answers the question more broadly for all the folks uh, that show up in therapy, which side of the hexagon you start on pretty much depends upon what the person's struggling with. You know, there are six places to start and, you know, ACT isn't really a linear therapy where you start here and then you do this and then you do the other thing. Based on what the situation affords and what the clinical presentation is, um, you could you could start anywhere. One of the things I like to do is get a sense of is this person voluntary or are they semi-voluntary? There's no real involuntary clients, I don't think. But if the person wants change, if the person is saying to themselves, you know, I need to, uh, you know, do something with my life, then I think you start with the acceptance and the diffusion. Acceptance really is linked to creative hopelessness. You can talk about, you know, all the stuff they've tried before, and now we're going to try something culturally deviant and and new. I'm going to ask you to accept it. And someone who's voluntarily there is going to say, well, all right, this is a little weird, but I'm willing to to try because I want to change. If someone's semi-voluntary and you said to them, well, I, I want you to pretend that you're like swimming in quicksand and you've got a shovel and uh, I just want you to uh, you know, play tug of war with a monster. And they don't want to be there in the first place. Those acceptance moves are going to probably – they're probably going to run afoul. It's, uh, asking mm-hmm. someone to accept the way that they feel is so culturally deviant that someone who doesn't want change is going to be less likely uh, to, to buy in. So I like to talk to folks who are involuntary more about their values. Hey – 
you're stuck here. I know you don't want to be here. You're semi-voluntary. Someone sent you here, court ordered. What do you care about? Like, what would you be doing if you weren't here? What are the things that really, you know, really get you going? And and how, how can we kind of put together an action plan to make sure you don't have to come back to see a guy like me anymore, you know, and you can go <laughs> do the things that you care about. So that's when, when someone asks, well, where, where do you start with somebody like that? That's, that's how I kind of set up the dichotomy. Well, where mm-hmm. I start might have to do with, you know, how badly the person wants to change for someone like Dennis and, and, and whether I can do it in a, uh, a session or not, I think it's, it's better to kind of take what I just got done saying he wanted to change. And mm-hmm. I asked him how well, has your shy routine, your avoidance, your unwillingness to feel embarrassed and flushed in front of uh, women uh, and, and your kind of disappearing act at parties or your no-shows at, at certain kind of pep rallies, how well has that been helping you with your value of trying to have interpersonal relationships? Well, it hasn't. Well, then we go into some acceptance moves, which lends very nicely into diffusion moves. And then somewhere along the lines, you can kind of start to teach the folks what uh, contacting the present moment's all about, all the while kind of building up bricks of a behavior intervention plan. I think all these things can happen simultaneously. Mm-hmm. So in other words, you, you might do some practicing on, on you know, acceptance um, exercises, diffusion work, but then also take some time to, to make some sort of practice, like go outside the room or do a role play with you or go to the mall, even as you're teaching those skills, in other words. I, yes, I mm-hmm. think I, mm-hmm. that's the supervision I give uh, all of my act supervisees over the last several years has been, you know, if you're spending week after week after week just talking to your clients and you never leave the therapy room, I question just how much committed action you're able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and and if that's where the rubber hits the road, um, then you might be building up this really beautiful car, but it's just stuck up on blocks until you get to see some kind of measurement change. You get to see a, yeah. a change in the rate, duration, um, you know, intensity, perseverance of certain repertoire, certain behaviors. Um, mm. Can you invite people to act differently and can you observe it, measure it? And if you can, then you know you're having uh, influence on the person. Mm. Wow. I'm starting to feel like, you, you pretty much bring committed action every session. I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it, it it might be, it might be my you know behavioral background, but you know, but I'm really uh, thinking that I'm pretty open minded to other ideas, to other therapists. I mean, I had to be. I worked at a community mental health center where folks who were hired weren't all behavior therapists, and I was their supervisor, and I was willing to kind of say, you know. Do what you think works. I'd like you to think that you're going to work with empirically supported treatment stuff. And when you're doing the work that you care about and the work that you have, you know, your education in, see if you are getting some kind of measurable change. And, you know, that's not just a behavioral idea. Most psychologists, counselors, drug and alcohol uh, professionals, social workers are trying to see if they can measure change. I mean, that's just the way of the world with managed care and HMOs and Medicaid. So we are we are influenced by outside forces, not just behavior analyst supervisors, to measure change. And really, committed action is is an important factor in change measurement. Mm-hmm. Got it. So, in addition to what you've talked about, are there any specific committed action exercises that you always try and incorporate? 
um, you know, in, in addition to the in vivo stuff you do and, and whatever you integrate into the empirically supported treatment, are there any exercises, committed action exercises that are common in your practice? You know, in comparison to some of the other areas on the uh, hexaflex, the committed action doesn't have as many of the uh, mm-hmm. uh, as many of the acty exercises. You know, there's no tug of war with a monster. Mm-hmm. There's no milk, 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 milk. Right. There's no, you know, there's not a lot of uh, of, of quirky stuff. It's this is where the rubber hits the road. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say mm-hmm. it's no nonsense, but you know, this is where we want to see it. You know, can you touch the doorknob? Can you ask this woman what time it is? You know, can you put together a behavior action plan? Can you parent? this way and set up a contingency management program for your child uh, instead of spanking them. You know, there, there's not a lot of, of, of that kind of acty stuff that comes to mind. If, okay. if there, there might be. But, but I do have one quick thing, and, you know, I forget who I learned it from. It was probably at Kelly Workshop. It might be in one of the books, but I like the uh, uh, committed action exercise, jumping off of a piece of paper. Mm. And the idea behind <laughs> jumping off a piece of paper is to show folks – that we're not asking you to do something grandiose or grand. Committed action is a demonstration that you're doing something. Now, there's a, there's a couple of different ways to interpret the jumping off of a piece of paper. I realize that. So there might be some other fundamentalists out there that, that use this uh, exercise a different way. But the way I use it is I'd like to see something change. I think you'd like to see something change. Let's choose what it is. It doesn't have to be fantastic. It has to be something, though, right? I mean, if we're really going to move forward, and when I'm in an interview like this, I, I get very have to, and it must. In therapy, it's not so exhortative, okay? It's not so forceful. Mm-hmm. So in therapy, it would be more like, I'd like to invite you, know, invite you to think about it like this. You care about certain things in your life changing. Let's see what we can collaborate on to be some of the next steps. Now, they don't have to be huge steps. What I'm going to do is I'm going to show you something, and I put a piece of paper on the, chair, on the floor, and I say, I'm going to commit to a behavior called jumping. Jumping. It ends in I-N-G. It's a behavior. It's a gerund. It's something I'm doing. And I get on the piece of paper, and I just jump off, and I say, you see that? In a behavior. I committed to doing it, and I did it. Notice that I can also, and then I climb up onto my chair, And I say, I'm going to engage in the same exact behavior. I'm committing to jumping. And then I jump off of the um, chair. I say, do you notice that the action that I did, the, 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 the thing that I did was just simply jumping? It almost looked identical. But the consequences to it, well, one was maybe easier, smaller, not as grand as the other one as jumping off of the chair. Some people feel like when they come in here, they have to revolutionize their life. And it's like, you know, jumping off of, a, you know, a two-story garage. It, it, therapy doesn't have to be like that. Next, within the next week, can you jump off of a piece of paper? Can you get some kind of behavior that shows that you're moving in the direction of jumping? Hmm. Now, with that analogy, what is it going to be for smoking cessation, being a better parent, reducing your depressive repertoire, dealing with your obsessive compulsive thoughts. We, we, could, we could choose for next week to be jumping off of a chair, but let's look at things in a manageable way. 
Why do we want to make it easy? Why, why jump off a piece of paper? Because if it's too big, they're going to quit or it's going to be an obstacle for them sticking to it, or it's going to be so hard and aversive that they just don't work towards it. Mm-hmm. But if you jump off a piece of paper, the consequences aren't all that aversive. And you know what you can do when someone engages in jumping? You can reinforce it. You can reward it. They did it. There's movement. They're actually doing the thing that they chose to do. Yeah, sure, between you and me, it's not grand. But it is movement. And for some people who have been restricted, for so long in their life, jumping off of a piece of paper is actually a big deal. Mm-hmm. Now, just to clarify right. for folks that are new, uh, that are part of the audience, obviously we're not really talking about jumping. It's one of those act metaphors. We're trying to see how can we get you know, a clinically relevant intervention to just be a step in the right direction. It doesn't have to, they don't have to travel miles right away. They just have to take a step in the right direction. When they do that, in your therapeutic relationship, you can reinforce their clinical gains. And when you reinforce it, you increase the likelihood of it happening again. And boom, they start moving in that right direction. Their repertoire starts to broaden. Mm. Gotcha. Very cool. Okay, well, that, well that's that's helpful, DJ. That's very good. Um, I, I, I am aware of a couple metaphors that I've seen associated with committed action. Okay. One is the swamp metaphor, and one I think is the visitor at a party or man at a party metaphor. Are you familiar with either of those at all? Sure. Yeah. Will you just get, or maybe there's others, Jen, you may know others, but let's just, let's give our listeners a few of those metaphors that may also be valuable in addition to what you just said. Okay. Um, I think the uh, man at a party or as had been um, kind of, politically incorrectly put in the 1999 book joe the bum uh Mm. metaphor um yeah that's uh that story um has to do with it's funny that i use this particular metaphor with dennis the person who was having a hard time asking people out on a date um what what the person at a party what the unwanted guest at a party metaphor is about suppose you could have a party. It's your life. You could have in your life party whatever you want. You can have family. You can have friends. You can have an occupation. You can have a spiritual relationship. Um, certain things you do for recreation. And we can look at that as your as your party. And there, all these things are invited into it. You invite them into your home, and you walk around your party. And you're saying to yourself, you know, I'm going to do my recreational stuff now. I'm going to do my spiritual stuff, my occupational stuff. And then you realize someday when this psychopathology kind of just dawns on you, you kind of say, oh, my gosh, I really don't want something to show up to this party. I don't want something in my life. Somehow, some way, I've just developed this anxiety. Um, and I really don't want anxiety in my life. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk over to the door. It's got a window on it. I'm going to I'm going to look out there and check out is any anxiety coming except we're not going to call them anxiety. We're going to call them the unwanted guest. And you know what you're doing as you're as you're looking out there and you're being ever vigilant to not let anxiety into the party, to not let this invited guest into your party is while you're out there looking for it, you're no longer engaged with your guests. And you know what happens is as you look out there, there it comes. 
for one reason or another, it seems like every time you're on the lookout for this unwanted guest, he just starts to show up then. And so what you do is you stay up against that door and you know, you, you bar it and you lean into it, you make sure it's locked and you just cram up against that door because this guest is not invited. And you push and you strain and you struggle with it to make sure anxiety doesn't show up while you're at your party. But guess what? You're not at your party. You're trying not to have anxiety. You're trying not to have this unwanted guest. Hmm. So the party is going on. Your life is going by and you're not engaged in spirituality, occupational uh, uh, goals. You're not engaged in your family and your friends. You're trying not to be anxious, and you miss the whole party. This, the, the thing that might help and what we invite our clients to think about is, what would it be like if you just left the door open? What if you just said, in the service of having a party with my family, my friends, having a spiritual relationship, engaging in my recreational values and citizenship in order to have a full life that I care about, I'll just leave the door open. Yeah, anxiety will probably show up. Anxiety is bound to show up if you really are going to do things with your life. Anxiety is just a natural event. When you're unwilling to have it, you're stuck by the door trying to keep it out. You're mm -hmm. missing the party. Mm -hmm. If you're willing to have it, so there he is. There's your unwanted guest. Notice it fully without defense. Don't defend against him. Don't try to kick him out because as soon as you try to kick him out, you're no longer with your party. You're no longer interacting with the invited guests. Mm. What if you were just willing to have that particular uninvited guest? This might get a little bit too interpretive, but you know what happens if you were to do that? And I wouldn't necessarily tell this to my clients, but it kind of becomes diluted. Like that's just one thing amongst all the other guests that, yeah, sometimes I get anxious when I make toasts and when I go to church and when I engage in my citizenship values and I become a coach of my child's you know, soccer team, I'm doing so many things as part of my life party that, you know, so there's some anxiety involved in it. It becomes diluted. It's one guest in a really big party. But when we're so focused on keeping it out, then we miss out on living a life that we really care about. Right. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Well, and I think... Um... A nice piece inside this metaphor, I, I, I really like it, is um, it, it, it seems like you're also helping people sort of learn to pay attention in a new way to the full environment rather than just this one piece. So in other words, rather than having attentional narrowing, like you're only focusing on the anxiety piece, which I think is really common. You know, when you talk to people about mm -hmm. like what they, what they did the, that day, a lot of times people will just be like, oh, this thing happened at work. It was horrible, blah, blah, blah. And maybe it was one event or two things that were sort of aversive or unpleasant, but then they forget that there was like 10 hours where there were other things happening that were maybe neutral or maybe right. positive. That's sort of like the bias of attending to the negative. So part of that seems like it's teaching people to like remember that there's this larger world to pay attention to and that anxiety is just one piece. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. Yep. And then another one I found useful is, is the swamp metaphor. Um, do you want to talk briefly about that one or you want me to? Um, yeah, I'd like to hear 
hear your version of the swap metaphor, if that's okay. I'll just, I'll just, unless Jen, unless you want to do it. No, go for it. No, I just, I, you, you basically just kind of talk about some type of destination. Let's say you want to go climb a mountain or reach some type of goal. Um, but as you start walking towards that, that mountain or, or that goal, you, you realize that there's a swamp between you and that objective. And um, as you start moving forward, you start sinking deeper and deeper into the swamp. And let's just say that, that there's a rope that's kind of suspended over you. And, you know, you're allowed to cling to that rope to kind of guide you in the direction. And you could call, you know, that rope your values. Um, it's kind of something that will orient you in the right direction. But um, as you start walking towards your goals or, or your committed values, uh, committed action you start taking, you are going to feel all sorts of sensations that are uncomfortable, much like you'd feel kind of traipsing through a murky, uh, cold, you know, insect-infested swamp. And so the question is, can you keep moving forward um, with your committed action and experience a lot of unpleasant feelings and sensations um, if ultimately you know that your values are going to take you in that direction where you're you're achieving, you're, you're living the life you want to live, you're enjoying, you're kind of enjoying... Um, you know, it may it, there may be some time where you're not necessarily enjoying your journey, but but if you can make it through the swamp, you'll get to the other side and really start enjoying that journey as you're as you're walking towards the direction of your values. So it's just all about you know because there's a lot of people who are going to start start with the committed action and get overwhelmed or flooded with with anxiety or emotions or fear, and they need to be encouraged in some way to keep moving forward and experience that anxiety and fear. Right, right. And I think you nailed it, not only the committed action, but just as that particular metaphor being emblematic of the whole act process. I'm going to commit to walking this trail towards the mountain I want to get to. That's the, that's the action path. The values are my rope. They're the direction that I want to walk in. They're kind of like my touchstone or the thing that supports me as I do this. And you need to accept the fact that you're in the muck and the mire, that, you know, it's not pleasant. And in order to continue on the direction of my valued rope and commit to this path, I, I, I can either avoid the muck and mire or I can have it fully and without defense and keep moving in that direction. And then just to add to that, you know, you're your mind's probably going to tell you, Ugh, I hate this stuff. I didn't want to go in that direction anyway. This stinks. Why do swamps always seem to show up in my life? And just notice, <laughs> notice that your mind is telling you that kind of thing. And that while you're holding on to that rope, while you're, while you're going through it, you're here now. I mean, you're essentially learning in mindfulness, both contact the present moment and the attachment, um, sorry, and, and um, self as context. When you learn both of those things, and you're no longer attached to conceptualized self, you're essentially saying, I am here now. That's it. I mean, it's one of the most profound things someone can realize in their life. I am here now. And yeah, it has, happens to be a swamp, and I'm judging that. I notice the judgment, and I diffuse from it. Uh, having that feeling, that, that, that ex existential experience, I am here now, is also part of the act process. I think that's very grounding. I am here now, willing to have the thoughts the emotions, because I care about this direction. So I'm going to commit to moving that way. Yeah, keep moving forward. Right. 
Well, excellent. Um, wow, we're, I think we're. I think this is kind of a really good summative kind of uh, place that we've come to, where we're really bringing it all together. Um, uh, I guess. What do you do? Is there anything you can do if a client isn't really super compliant? Like, like you know, in in session maybe uh, they're willing to go along, but then you kind of you you create some you create some goals around committed action, and you you give them some of those assignments, and you want them to kind of strike out and really start applying these things to their lives, and they keep coming back saying, "Oh, I didn't get around to it. Oh, I really meant to." Oh, it was just a bad week. What if you're not just getting a lot of compliance? You know, I was I was going to be quick to give an an act answer. I think that's probably more contextually appropriate, but I'd rather give a behavior analytic answer and say I do a functional analysis on the obstacles. You know, what what is it that's reinforcing this person to do other things besides, you know, the 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 target behaviors. Mm, you know, what, yeah. what is it? I mean, uh, is there, and, and what can we put into place? Um, what kind of tangible social reinforcers can be put into place? What, what, what are the kind of escape avoidance things that are already in place here that makes the person more likely to do other things besides mm. the, uh, the target, the target behavior. So I, I think that's, that's, important first to do a good clinical behavior analysis of, you know, what, what are the obstacles here? And then I think the, the next thing, this is more, you know, acty, so to speak, is um, make sure you've clarified the val- values. I mean, does that person really care about the target, val- uh, sorry, the target behavior as much as he or she might care about, you know, the other things that they're doing? Um, what are the emotional, cognitive, sensation-based obstacles um, that they're avoiding, and um, are they really being mindful of how they're living their life on a day-to-day, you know, moment-to-moment to the degree that that's possible basis. So th- those are some of the things I'd think about, and then I'd also just take another look at the action plan and say, is this really manageable? Have we set up an action plan here that's really based on, you know, jumping off the two-story garage or jumping off, you know, a stack of chairs rather than something a little bit more manageable, like jumping off a textbook or jumping off a piece of paper. I mean, maybe I've asked this person to just do too much, hmm. you know, and, and, and this isn't something that most, you know, I think professionals who promote um, behavior therapy and, and psychotherapy, you know, say too much, but some people honestly, just aren't in a space in their life to make those kinds of changes given the resources they have. Hmm. And you don't hear, you don't hear a lot of supervisors saying that, and uh, you know, not a lot of people who want to sell books about their therapy say that either, <laughs> you know, but <laughs> some people just, you know, let's, let's face it. You know, I, I think the average number of, of therapists that need to be seen until someone reports that they've, you know, uh, had, had success in therapy is two point something. So if you're the first person that they're seeing, you're not likely, you know, I'm obviously <laughs> playing uh, hard, quick and fast with the numbers there, but, you know, you're, you're not likely to be the one that helps them. Behavior change is hard. So if someone's being resistant, functional analysis, clarify values, 
see if they've got mindfulness skills, see what kind of things that they're avoiding, and then really take a look at developmental issues, resource issues. There might be other obstacles that are outside of our of our influence. That doesn't mean none of that should mean or be interpreted as you can give up on your client. I'm just trying to make sure that we as, you know, behavior changers keep some semblance of dignity when when we can't change everybody. Human behavior change is a very difficult uh, vocation. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think this this segues nicely into something that I've been thinking about as you've been talking, DJ. Um, could you speak a little bit of sort of the role of the therapist in terms of the overall behavior change that you're you're trying to to help people with? Um, are you sort of a cheerleader? Are you trying to teach them the skills so they can go do it on their own? How how do you sort of see yourself as as like the the as part of the sort of chain of change, if right. you so to speak? You know, it all depends on developmental level of of the person you're working with and what the clinically relevant behavior is. Um, and then how far along you are in your relationship and how well grounded that relationship is. Um, cause I, I do think it sometimes you're might be a, a cheerleader. Sometimes you're a teacher. Sometimes you're a contingency manager. Um, I think if folks are learning how to do act an adjunct skill, uh, to bring along with act would be to learn functional analytic psychotherapy. I call it a skill, but it's it's really you know another approach. And I say that um, you know if you're doing ACT, you should also be doing functional analytic psychotherapy at the same time. What you're doing is you're you're looking for clinically relevant behaviors that are occurring in session, and you're being mindful as a therapist to look for these particular problem behaviors, and then seeing how you can consequate them in session, which kind of gets at, you know, why act therapists and behavior therapists really do uh, need to foster a, a rich therapeutic alliance with their clients. Because a lot of times when we're going to reinforce someone for doing something good in session, we're not going to give them an M&M or a quarter or a raisin. We, we have to it's kind social of social reinforcement, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're talking about, you know, better, some kind of social reinforcer that their clinical gain, their, your approval as a therapist, um, that they're doing something in the right direction that can motivate further change that can motivate, you know, a, a psychological change for that particular person. So when you ask, you know, what's the role of the therapist? Sometimes, you know, you just teach folks. I mean, it's hard to model mindfulness for someone who has no idea about it. So you teach them what, what mindfulness is all about, and then you can become a mindful model. You can model what you want the person to do later on. Um, sometimes we are their reinforcer, their contingency manager. We're looking to make sure that they do some of those behaviors that, they were, that they're aiming to do. We, we, we tell them that, to keep that up, that, that, they're, that they're moving in the right direction. And sometimes, you know, we, uh, um, we actually fill lots of roles as a therapist, depending upon what gets brought into the room. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that's really helpful for helping people think about, you know, the different ways to approach uh, the work with different presentations, different uh, different skill sets of the clients coming in, and and things right. like that, rather than right. sort of one way to approach this work. Yeah. 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 Nice. Thanks. 
So DJ, I'm really, I think this is a nice um, sort of well-rounded perspective on not just committed action, but sort of the whole act model and sort of the role of the therapist in all this work. And I feel like we sort of come full circle. Um, and yet there's still so much to practice, you know, inside everything you said, there's a lot of nuances here. So sure. where would you direct people um, for continuing to learn if they're coming to act as a new therapist or um, trying to learn act? What, what else, what other resources would you recommend for folks to, to pick up? Right. Well, I think part of the training canon has to be, you know, the 99 book, um, Learning Act. Uh, the, the name of the book is Learning Act. Um, and I would I would suggest folks get that. It comes with a DVD. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's, you know, that's pretty good, uh, you know, to start out as far as, you know, what you can read. Um, getting yourself to workshops, I think, is really important um, to see how you how other therapists, um, especially if they're an a uh, recognized act trainer, you know, how they can model doing act. It's, it's not really just this codified step by step, do this first, teach them mindfulness and then, you know, give them a tombstone exercise. And you know, it's not like that. Um, and I think that means that the next really good step would be to get supervision. And there's not, mm. you know, the, the um, world is not teeming with act supervisors. Um, but if you can form a, a study group, a reading group, a peer supervision group, you know, that, that would be, that would be neat. But I know that, uh, you know, I was reading context press books, teaching, um, out of the act 99 book, uh, graduate classes, but it wasn't until I was in private practice and, uh, working with Patty Bach on a fairly regular basis where we were kind of knocking around act ideas and doing peer supervision did my, um, act skills really seem to feel in such a way that, that I was comfortable with them, you know, so I, I highly recommend getting some kind of supervision. Um, mm. The Act in Practice book that Patty and I wrote, I think would be also a good, um, it could even be a good starting point. What, what I did in the back of my mind while I was writing Act in Practice was I thought about the fact that I was working at this community behavioral health network and that none of the folks who I supervised, none of the psychologists or social workers, none of them really cared very much about behavior therapy and never even heard of ACT. And I said, well, if this is going to be an ACT clinic, I need to make sure I can explain it in such a way that it's fun, it's colloquial, and just uses lots of slang and, and really can break down the idea of, well, what do I do? How do I put this ACT in practice, what, what do I do if I don't understand relational frame theory and functional contextualism? How do I conceptualize what to do with my clients? And, you know, that that was my question. I mean, I had like 10 people in my mind and I was writing <laughs> the book to them because um, they were my supervisees. They were, you know, mm -hmm. social workers, counselors and psychologists who had just had no idea. So I would I would recommend the uh, act and practice uh, book to folks and then come to the summer institutes and the world cons. I mean, there's just so much going on. And uh, getting a chance to interact with folks and take workshops and and learn what what's going on in the world uh, of act is it's just so educational. I think it will build up people's skills. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think all that's a great place to start. And I just want to add too that you know the website has a lot of free materials to sort of supplement that. You know, I once can't you've believe read some I forgot. Books, 
Yeah, that's okay. Um, <laughs> um, just uh, you know, to supplement the sort of reading that a person might do or a peer consultation group, um, that you know, the website, you people, it's one of the things that's so cool is people will just put up um, protocols and exercises and and things uh, that that they've created and worked on and for feedback and to just share with other people. And in fact, you have. Uh, the act and practice website is through contextualpsychology.org, right? Um, right. Slash right. act and practice, and um, or you can search for that. And and I think you guys put up the um, a case conceptualization form, right, uh, for tracking yep. client progress. So you know that's something that you know ordinarily you might have to buy the book and photocopy it, but it's sort of up there in a in a format that people can download and use. So yep. yeah, yeah, lots, that's why lots I... of cool places to to learn and then to put into place um, different ways to approach the work. So. Cool. Maybe we can include a link or two on our on the blog post. Yeah, we can, we can definitely do that. Yeah. Good. Very good. Well, Dr. DJ Moran, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on Acting Context Podcast to talk to us about your perspectives. I think this has been extremely valuable. Thank you very much. I can't thank you enough for, for having me. It's quite an honor to uh, to have been invited, so uh, I'm glad to help. And you want to plug you want to plug a, a website or a book or a project just uh you know to kinda now, I think people should make sure to go to the ACBS website. It's contextualpsychology.org. It really <laughs> is just so much stuff up there. Um, and it's it's fun to be able to see what other people are doing. It's cool to have a place, like a clearinghouse, where I say, well, I've been working on this. I could you know, maybe upload this and share it. And um, and, and really, if, if, if folks are, are interested in this kind of work, um, joining ACBS is such a simple thing to do. Um, and all those materials are at your disposal. It doesn't even cost that much. I mean, it's values-based dues. You you can pay what you think it's worth to join ACBS, and so I highly recommend it. Wow, I was going to have you plug your own stuff, and you're going to do our work for us. Yeah, well, I, <laughs> I don't know if I have anything that uh, that folks who are act therapists want to uh, kind of jump onto, except for maybe the act and practice book. But uh, if uh, if folks are interested in seeing what can be done in the workplace, um, uh, and, and, and how acceptance and commitment training influences innovation and leadership uh, and actually you know, performance on the job and safety, uh, pickslide.com, and that's uh, P-I-C-K-S-L-Y-D-E.com, is, uh, is just a, it's just a taste. It's, it's not a full explanation. But I recently wrote uh, an article called uh, Act for Leaders, and it has to do with, um, with how we can help our governmental leaders become crisis resilient change managers and um and, and and how can we help people lead change better without being fused without being overcome with their experiential avoidance maintaining their values while they do it and commit to proper community change mm. so you're going to save government as we know it <laughs> I don't know. That's, yeah, good luck to me on that one. But, uh, <laughs> read it and they can get inspired by it. They could do something like that. <laughs> well, DJ, you have to make sure to give me your signature before your uh, your autograph before you know Obama hires you. <laughs> yeah, make sure I do that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Oh, this is fantastic. Thanks so much. All right, thanks, DJ and Jen. Thanks for joining us as well as always. Bye bye now. All right, take care, everyone. Bye-bye. 
The Act in Context podcast is a production of the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science. Please check us out at contextualpsychology.org slash podcast. Music was brought to you by Armory.